Amen. If you've got elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to be a part of what we have going on. I see Miss Ashley right there by the door. If you're here for the first time, we want to tell you welcome. Welcome to Vine Community Church. My name is Treb Prater. We are honored to have you in worship with us this morning. Um, we are on this lifelong journey through the book of Acts. Uh, we have officially uh, parked ourselves on week 57. Um, it has taken us almost two years because we've taken some breaks and whatnot and, and gone from there. And it's taken us quite a bit of time. I can tell Amy's coming to bring me a picture. Can I have it? Is it super good? All right. What, am I in here this time? It looks like a bunch. Oh, that's me. I love it. Thank you so much. <clears throat> I mean, I really could wallpaper my house with uh, Amy's pictures. So I love it. Awesome. Um, so we're in this, this sort of lifelong journey. It's taken us a couple years. We've taken some breaks. But it's been a really, at least for me, it's been really uh, powerful to see this story unfold from start to finish. And we are, we are definitely in the home stretch. We only have a few chapters left. And we have come to the place where we are at the end of the, the three missionary journeys, a period of time that took about 11 years, um, about 9,000 miles Paul and his companions covered, and they have finished those missionary journeys where the churches of Thessalonica and Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus, all those churches have been planted on the missionary journey. So all the letters that we see in the New Testament where Paul's writing letters to the Philippians and all those kind of letters, those were, were planted churches that took place on the missionary journeys. And those have come to a close. Paul has returned to Jerusalem against all, a whole bunch of people in his life that have said, hey, look, don't go back. Danger waits for you in Jerusalem. But Paul believed that the Holy Spirit had compelled him to go to Jerusalem. No matter what was waiting for him there, Paul believed that God called him to go. And so a few weeks ago, we picked up as Paul went back into Jerusalem. The three missionary journeys had come to a close, and he was met with some incredible hostility. And the believers that were there, led by James and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, knew this hostility was there because there were rumors going around that Paul, while he was out there among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, while he was out there sharing the gospel of Jesus with them and, and teaching them, that he was also telling the Jewish people that lived out there that they no longer had to live according to the law of Moses. Like, they could do pretty much whatever they wanted. That was the rumor that was going around. It was untrue on most levels, but the people in Jerusalem were furious at Paul because Judaism was so closely tied, or Christianity at that time was so closely tied to Judaism that sometimes it was hard to uh, differentiate. Even the Christians that were there were upset that Paul might be telling people that they could remove themselves from the temple or from the law of Moses, and the, the city was just really hostile to Paul. They saw Paul taking the gospel of the Gentiles as a threat to their very way of life. So when Paul returned to Jerusalem, the leaders got him together and they go, dude, we got a big problem, man, and you're pretty much it. So we're going to come up with a solution. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to participate in a purification rite with some other guys that are already kind of going through it. And that way everybody will see you uh, participating in this. And they'll be like, hey, Paul loves, uh, he loves Moses and he loves the temple and he's not against any of this stuff. So Paul does that, but before it kind of comes to its completion, he's kind of recognized walking around with this guy named Trophimus who was from Ephesus. And the Jewish people there believed that Paul had taken that guy from Ephesus into the temple, which was punishable by death. And long story, they just got furious. And this giant riot started. And they were so angry that the entire city was stirred. And they grabbed Paul and they drug him into the gates of the temple and they shut the gates. And they just started to beat him. I mean, beat him to death, right? 
And, and as they're doing that, the Roman guards see this giant kind of riot going on. And the head of all the troops, because Israel and, Jew, and Jerusalem was under Roman, were under Roman rule at the time, they had all the Roman guards there. They rushed out of the barracks and led by this guy named Galicius, who was the commander of the entire Roman army. And they grabbed Paul. The crowd stopped beating him. And they basically put him in chains. And they said, what are you doing and who are you, right? Well, they can't hear anything because the crowd is so crazy, and they're just trying to rip Paul limb from limb. So they decided they would just take him inside the army barracks, right? So they dragged Paul up to the steps. And last week we saw that as they got to the steps of the barracks with Paul in chains, carrying him up there, he stops, and he looks at Lysias, and he says, can I address the crowd? And Lysias kind of hoping that this would quell this giant riot because it was an out-of-control mob. He says, sure, and Paul stands on the steps of the Roman army barracks, and he motions his hands, and he begins to speak to them in Aramaic, which is the the language that Jews use during kind of just everyday life and activity, and they got really quiet. And Paul told the story, a very famous story that we've looked at a couple of times of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, while he was going to persecute Christians, right? While he was traveling around trying to arrest them, have them beaten, they, Jesus showed up and, and with this kind of brilliant light knocked him to the ground and, and blinded him and then led him into the city and basically said, listen, uh, your message is not going to be heard in Jerusalem. They're not going to accept it, and I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And Paul says, no, 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 these People love me. They'll, they'll accept my message. They know what I was doing. I was going from synagogue to synagogue. They know who I really am. They'll, they'll know that this, this transformation that's happening in me is real. And, and Jesus basically says to him, nope, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. So he tells a story, and he gets to that very end line where he says, and so God's sending me to the Gentiles, and, and we're going to pick up right there because the crowd is, as you can imagine, they're not going to love that statement, and things are going to change. So Paul's on the steps. He shared his story, and last week we talked about the importance of sharing our story and knowing that Jesus is the hero when we're not defined by our sins and failures and kind of explored our own story that way. And, and today we're going to look at how the crowd responds and what that means for you and I as followers of Christ and how our call to live counterculturally and fight the trappings of the world. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Acts chapter 22. Uh, we're going to finish up that little speech and that kind of reaction today. We're also going to be in Philippians chapter 3. So for those of you that have anxiety, if you don't know exactly where we're going to go, uh, that was my dad growing up. He, he would go through the bulletin of the church and he would mark every hymn, every page, everything. Uh, and, you know, so he just kind of knew. He didn't want any surprises thrown at him and worship. So if that's you, we're going to be in Philippians 3 also. And you can slide a little thing in there. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll explore this text together. God, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that your word is living and active, that it is alive, God, that it is, it is true and it is real. God, I thank you that it is, um, it's, it's your heart that speaks directly to us. Lord, I ask this morning that you would reveal truth to us. God, we're not going to discover you in these pages. We can't. You reveal yourself to us. So teach our hearts. Take a moment right where you sit and just ask God to teach your heart this morning. Whatever that means or whatever he needs to say to you, just invite God to teach you this morning. Pray for someone behind you or in front of you. Even if you don't know their name or you've never seen them before, just, just pray that God would move in them. Maybe it's your spouse or your friend or just, just as weird as that sounds, just pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for somebody else.
Lord, we turn this entire morning over to you. We ask that you would teach our hearts through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in 22-22 this morning. So Acts 22-22, and then at the end we're going to flip over to Philippians um, 3. So Paul's standing on the steps of the army barracks. He has delivered his story. He has told the incredible story of his transformation on the road to Damascus. And he ends in 24 or 21 by saying, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you away to the Gentiles. <clears throat> All right, let's look at 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their, raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And he directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Well, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported, What are you going to do? He asked, This man is a Roman citizen. And the commander went to Paul and asked and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes, I am. Then the commander said, I had to pay a high price for my citizenship. Uh, But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. And those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. And the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him in order that the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin assemble. And then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So Paul's on the steps of this army barrack and this giant, probably few thousand people, angry, angry mob had just tried to rip him limb from limb. Paul motions, the crowd goes silent, he tells his story, and he ends by saying, and the Lord said he is sending me to the Gentiles. And when the crowd heard that, they freaked out, and they started saying, kill him, rid the earth of him, he's not uh, fit to live. And they were shouting all these things, and they got violent and crazy. And so Lysias, realizing that things were escalating kind of quickly now, he has Paul taken into the army barracks, and he orders that he be questioned and flogged. Now, we all know what flogging is because it's that very famous sort of torture and punishment that Jesus went through before his crucifixion, where they tie your hands to a pole or stretch you out on a table, and they make this whip with nine kind of leather strands off it that have bone or glass, and they, they literally just smash you in the back, ripping the flesh off your back. From the Jewish standpoint, about 40 lashes was a death sentence, right? It was really just a means of torture. And so what Lysias did was he ordered that Paul be taken in to be questioned and flogged. What that basically meant is questioned and tortured until he told them whatever it is that he wanted to know. And they wanted to know why the crowd was so angry. So he ordered that Paul be taken in and tortured until he said or spoke whatever it was they wanted to hear. Basically questioned and tortured. It says they stretched him out most likely with his hands above his head to a pole or maybe even on a table. And as they were about to begin to beat him, right, he says, hey, is it, quick question for you, is it legal for you to, uh, before we get this thing going here, just, is it legal for you to beat or torture or flog a Roman citizen that's not been found guilty or even been put on trial? Well, the Roman centurion, the guy that I guess was going to be doing the beating, was like, this is probably a big deal. And so he went to the commander and he said, hey, uh, what are you going to do, right, because I'm out of this one. Because apparently Roman citizenship, it had a certain set of rights. Now, we don't really know what those are are historically because it was a moving target because government was corrupt. But one of the things I guess it prevented was torture without kind of a trial. 
And so Lysias comes over to Paul and he goes, hey, Paul, is that true? Are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, it is, I am. And Lysias says, I had to pay a high price for my citizenship. And Paul says, well, I was born into mine. And you could get Roman citizenship in two ways back in those days. One, you could get it by right, or two, you could get it by reward. So by right, where if you were a high-ranking official, or if you were uh, some kind of aristocrat, or if you were having your citizenship passed down to you, you had the right to be a Roman citizen. The Romans were taking over all kinds of lands, and they didn't just give citizenship out because it had a certain set of privileges with it. Well, we know that Paul's citizenship was handed down to him from his father. Well, Lysias says, I had to pay a high price for mine. And the way you got it as a reward is if you honored the emperor, uh, Claudius at the time, if you honored the emperor, if you did something great for Rome, or if you bought yourself citizenship through bribes. And the government was so corrupt back in those days, and most likely this is exactly how Lysias became a Roman citizen. He bought it or bribed it to, king, to the emperor Claudius or to one of the high-ranking officials, and he basically says, I had to pay. I bribed a high price for mine. And Paul says, that's great, but I was born into it, which sort of trumps your bribe. And Lysias gets kind of alarmed, right? And actually, so do the centurions. And they're alarmed because if they beat or tortured Paul without trial, um, and they did it in terms of an illegal way, they would be due the punishment that Paul was, which means they could possibly pay with their lives. And so they kind of said, all right, uh, this is probably not a great idea. So what they decided to do was they'd take Paul before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. They'd have him assembled. And they'd stand Paul before him, and they'd basically say, why are you so mad at this guy? And Lysias was trying to figure out a way to understand what was going on. Now, from this point forward, Paul's going to stay in jail, basically all over the country. He's going to hop around until he ends up in Rome in jail, waiting to stand trial before the emperor. Right? This is the beginning of Paul's sort of imprisonment movement that's going to lead us to the end of the book. But it begins right here. And the reason that he's not tortured or beaten is because he actually calls on his citizenship, which if you remember any of our other study of the book of Acts, Paul never does before. He lets himself get beaten. He lets himself get all kinds of things without playing the, hey, I'm a Roman card, right? Um, but it's really interesting. He says it now, and, and, it, and it stops everything. There's a lot of things we could examine about this passage. And as I was spending time with it, I really thought that there were two kind of real things that jumped out to me that I want to bring up this morning. And the first is this idea that as followers of Christ, we are often called to live in ways that are very countercultural. So Paul was called by the Lord himself to go and take the gospel to a people that the Jewish people couldn't stand. The Jewish people hated the Gentiles because they were very distinctly non-Jewish. And even those that were followers of Christ weren't really sure what to do with the Jewish people, because they had really crazy customs, and they were pagans, and they were dirty, and they were weird, and they, they just probably didn't deserve this thing. But in Paul's movement, right, he was called by the Lord himself to take the gospel to those people, which ironically enough are the very people that Paul was kind of opposed to. He was a Pharisee. He lived his life in direct opposition to the Gentile way of life, and yet God is sending him now to the Gentiles. Oftentimes when we follow Christ, God calls us to a radically countercultural way of thinking, thinking differently with our money. This shouldn't be a surprise, right, because we've talked about these kind of things a lot. Living differently with our money, living differently with our lives, living in ways that defy conventional wisdom. A lot of times the world around us looks and says, that's kind of crazy, right? I mean, why would you want to spend your money to go over there to do this for those people? Or why would you take 10% or more of your income and give it away, right? 
Why would you walk away from a perfectly good job to follow this rabbit trail that you say you believe God is leading you down? Oftentimes, following Jesus lives, leads us in a way that is, that is very countercultural. And cultural, cultural norms are set up all around us, right? But what's really interesting about Paul's scenario is that it's that call to countercultural living where the, where, that leads to rejection and criticism. Because when we begin to live this way, to truly say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you with everything that I am. He is going to lead us to places that are going to cause rejection and criticism to come in your life. And that rejection and criticism is not going to be the, the small kind of critiques, like when people come to church, it's like, hey, it's a little too hot, or you wore shorts, or take your hat off, or whatever. Like, I'm talking about real criticism by the people that speak into your life and go, you're crazy for doing that. Why would you want to, after college, to walk out and go and do ministry for a few years? Or, or why would you walk away from a job you've had for 15 years to go work at the Baptist children's home? Right? Why would you give up your only free day of the week to go and serve the poor. People are going to look at you and say, that's ridiculous. But what's really crazy about this is that oftentimes that rejection and criticism comes from the places that we least expect it. We kind of expect it from that world out there. But the majority of the time that we get criticized and rejected for living counterculturally comes within the metaphorical walls of the church. It comes within the people that we trust and love the most. I mean, this is what's happening with Paul. Jesus knocks him to the ground and blinds him and says, hey, listen, you can't go tell your story in Jerusalem because they're going to reject you. And you remember what Paul said to Jesus in his story? He basically looks at Jesus and says, I'm not sure that you know what I've been doing. I have gone from synagogue to synagogue arresting people. I even had a letter from the high priest. And I stood there as they stoned Stephen to death holding their clothes. Like, when I tell these people that you showed up in my life, they're going to believe me. They know me, right? Well, of course, where does Paul's rejection come from? Well, it comes from that people group. But it also comes from the church. Both the Jewish people that Paul had spent the majority of his life with were going to reject his claim to follow Christ. And then the church that Paul had spent his entire life sharing the gospel about is going to reject his call to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So both people groups that Paul loved and poured his life into were going to reject him and criticize his very life. In fact, even the leaders of the church tried to figure out a way to make a soft landing for Paul. When we truly decide to live countercultural, to do something radical with our lives, our hearts, our money, our resources, because God calls us to, we will face rejection. And oftentimes that rejection comes from church. It comes from people that we love. Because that's not how we've ever done it. For 42 years, we've done it this way, right? Why would you go off and do that? That's crazy. A little side note, don't be one of those people. Like if someone says, I believe that God is calling me to this, instead of being the reactionary, say, let me pray with you. Let me hear the story. Tell me what God is doing. The church is so filled with naysayers because we're afraid of what that might mean if we live differently than the church we grew up in, right? We try and reach a different people group. That rejection and criticism often comes from within the, within the walls of this place. The other part of that living counterculture, that rejection and criticism come, it comes to really unexpected. The other part is that, and, and really interestingly enough, right, that rejection and that criticism, that people will love you, love you and love what you say until they don't. Here's what I mean by this. Paul was telling his story, right? 
He was telling his story, and he was killing it. The crowd was silent. They were loving him. It was a great story. I mean, God shows up and blinding lights and all kinds of things. And then he gets to the very end, and he says, that the Lord said to me, go, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And verse 22 says, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. The crowd, the people will love what you say until they don't. And the crowd loved Paul at that moment. They were in his story until he got to the point where he said something that didn't fit with what their cultural norms were. And when he said that, they decided it was time to kill him again. See, people will love you and they will love what you say as a follower of Christ until it calls into question their own cultural and comfort, comfortable norms. All right? Here's what I mean by this. We are infatuated as a culture with the principles that surround Christianity. We're infatuated with uh, social justice and giving and mission and love and faith and all those things, even talking about God in gener generalities. But there's one word that we use that changes everything. It changes the game, it makes people uncomfortable, and it turns worlds upside down. And of course, that one word is Jesus, right? They love the idea, and even in our church culture, we love the idea of the pieces that go around Christianity, kind of living morally the best I can, you know, doing uh, things for others, serving people, missional living, all those ideas are great until you begin to use the name of Jesus, because Jesus changes everything. It makes us very uncomfortable. We don't know what to do with that. Years ago, I was preaching in a very traditional church, and I whatever I don't even know what I was preaching on. And, and I get to the end, and you stand there, and you glad hand everybody as they leave, and they tell you that you did a great job, and you say thank you, and it pretty much that's how it happens. And one guy comes up, and he says, are you Baptist? And I said, I don't know. I don't think so. And he said, well, you sure use the name Jesus a lot. And I thought, oh, those Baptists have got it going on. And I said, I'm sorry. He goes, it's just a lot. And I was like, <laughs> all right, so I'm just going to file that one with where I don't know where to put it. And so, but the idea is the name of Jesus, right, changes the game. And you don't think I'm telling the truth? I dare you next time you're out with your coworkers, happy hour, friends, whatever, when they say, hey, how about the suitors at the spring game this Saturday? And you go, hey, I got a question. What do you guys think about the person of Jesus Christ? Everyone just go weird on you because no one knows what to do with that, right? Jesus sort of changes the game. I've been invited to, to publicly pray in a lot of places just because that's the nature. You know, no one else can pray but pastors apparently, even at my own Thanksgiving with my mom. I'm the only one that's allowed to apparently. But they ask you to come and pray. But they always have this caveat. But listen, we've got a lot of different people here, so if you can just pray in, the, in God's name and probably not use the name of Jesus. I've probably been told that 15 times over the course of my life. Why? Because Jesus makes us uncomfortable. We don't really know what to do with Jesus. People will love what you have to say until they don't. The problem is the cultural mandate that we have, that Paul had, was to tell our story. And what did we learn last week? At the center of our story is Jesus. You cannot tell your story as a follower of Christ apart from Jesus. There is no generic way to tell it. Jesus is the hero. He is the center. He is the movement of change. He is the everything. And if you're going to tell your story, you're going to end up saying Jesus. And that's going to cause a lot of uncomfortability. It's going to cause rejection and criticism. And that's going to cause you to want to become jaded and bitter and angry. Paul faced all kinds of stuff, but he never ends up jaded or angry. Paul realizes that part of his living countercultural 
kind of living was going to be rejection and criticism. And he felt called to proclaim that to the world. Look, following Jesus is going to lead you down a path of countercultural living. If it doesn't, I promise you, you're probably not following in Jesus' footsteps. Because everywhere Jesus went, he did the opposite of what culture promoted. He went to places that culture didn't go, right? Jews at the time didn't go to Samaria. They went 90 miles out of the way to cross the Jordan River, walk around an entire country just to get back to Jerusalem. Jesus just traipsed right through it. They didn't spend time with cripples or prostitutes or beggars. And Jesus touched them, right? Jesus' entire life was a countercultural movement. And as followers of Christ, 1 John 2 says that we are called to walk as he did if we claim to live in him. So if you're following Jesus, it will lead you into a way of countercultural living. And that will lead to rejection and criticism at times, right? And it will come from the places that you least expect it. And it will usually all be centered around the person of Jesus. And guess what? If that happens to you, congratulations, right? Because that's part of what it means to follow Christ. It's not a badge of honor like, hey, yeah, it's just like, look, Jesus, I get to suffer a little bit for you. Tell your story. Let Jesus be the center. This is what we're called to do. So we see Paul kind of in this countercultural moment. First thing that we kind of anchor ourselves to is that, look, we're going to be called to live this way. So we might as well get used to it and start trying to put our feet in the footsteps of where Christ lived. But the second big thing that Paul does in this, or that he, can we kind of see in this passage, is how important citizenship is. Now, citizenship is interesting, right? Because I'm not talking necessarily about citizenship in terms of uh, just our uh, kind of identification with the one country. Because citizenship is important not just because of who uh, are the benefits that we get, but who we identify with. Because citizenship is really closely tied to our identity. And citizenship is important in this passage because it actually saves Paul's life, most likely. He was about to be beaten and tortured until they got what they wanted or until he died, whichever one came first, Right? But Paul's a Roman citizen, and his citizenship or his identity saved his life. Now, what's interesting is that Paul, in a few short months, is going to find himself under house arrest, waiting to stand trial uh, for the emperor. He's waiting to basically go before the emperor, which God is going to tell him he's going to do. And he's waiting, and he's under house arrest. He's paying his own way. He's got guards standing outside his doors. And he's going to write a letter to a church he planted in Philippi. He's going to write a letter to this church under house arrest in Rome, and in that letter, he's going to address the idea of citizenship. But he's not going to address it from the standpoint that, that uh, he's a Roman or, or you're Greek or whatever. He's going to address it from the standpoint of something spiritual, something bigger. And I want to sidestep for a moment. I want to move to Philippians 3, and I want you to see this, because citizenship is really important in our lives as followers of Christ, but not so much because of the benefits we get, but because citizenship is tied to our identity. Who do we identify with? Who is our um, sort of our, our sense of being and belonging? Where does that come from? Well, the Bible tells us that a lot of that is surrounded about citizenship. And where are we citizens of? Are we citizens of the world? Or are we citizens of heaven? And how does that affect how we live? So flip over to Philippians 3 for me for just a minute. I want you to look at this for a second. We're going to be in verse 18. I'm just going to read a couple of verses real quick, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit together. This is what he says, Philippians 3.18, in the middle of this really great passage. He says, listen, for as I have often told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is in their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. So here's what I want you to understand about citizenship. All right? Here's what I want you to understand about the importance of it is that when we put our identity into the world, it leads to worldliness, and worldliness kills. When our citizenship is in the world, it leads us to worldliness, and worldliness kills. Now, in that passage, Paul doesn't actually use the, world, the word worldly. He used the word mindset on earthly things. Their God is in their stomach, their, their destruction is in their shame, right? Those, those words he uses. He's talking about a worldly idea. And when we identify with the world, we have our citizenship in the world, it basically says we want our identity to be tied to the things that matter to the world around us, right? So whatever matters to the world, whatever benefits they get from the world, I, my identity is closely tied to that. And Paul is basically saying that there is a dangerous trap for followers of Christ. And the trap is this, that we can set our identity on the things that the world says is important, that the world tells us we need, and the world says we have to have. And that can lead to death, not just physically, but spiritually. Rob your joy, right? Or we can understand that our citizenship is somewhere else. Most of us don't think we struggle with worldliness. We don't. We live in a culture where it is promoted, materialism, worldly things, ideas from the ways that we look to the ways our bodies are formed, to the things that we see on TV, to the things that were promoted and sold in advertisements every day, right? We're not necessarily thinking we're worldly. We live in a worldly place. And most of us actually think that we're not. Other people are. But the truth is our lives are steeped in it. And worldliness kills. Paul gives a very strict warning, and he does it even with tears. He says, listen, church, if I have told, as I've told you before, and I say now, even again with tears, many live as enemies to the cross of Christ, right? Their glory is in their shame. Their God is in their stomach. He's basically saying that there are so many people out there that live as enemies to the cross of Christ, not because they have denounced Jesus, but because they've exchanged it for a worldly way of living. Their God is their stomach. In other words, what I can feed me, right? Their glory is in their shame. In other words, I choose me. And I find glory in me. Their destiny is destruction. It leads to death. Most of us live in this crazy tension between the material world and our call to live as followers of Christ, right? We live with the I wants and the desires for physical things. Material possessions, clothes, cars, houses. The worldliness doesn't stop there, right? Worldliness also penetrates our soul in terms of how we look. How many of us are satisfied with what we look like? How many of us live comparing our, our bodies to other people? How many live of us look and think, if I could just get this thing, then I will truly be happy, right? Because why worldliness kills is because it says, I will exchange the promise that God says that he is enough for me by substituting that by saying, if I have this, then that will be enough. It exchanges God's promise for the lie. It's all around us, right? I mean, we talk about this a bunch. We see it on TV. We turn on your computers. I mean, social media, is the, even in our Christian culture, is the king of this, right? It's the king of promoting a life that we wish we had. 
I have a 14-year-old daughter, and and we went to dinner for her birthday, and we brought one of her little friends with us, and we were sitting there having dinner uh, for her birthday, and and we were talking to to her, and Haley was, you know, taking pictures of her food and whatever she sends it to, whoever she does. So, so, you know, and and so I look at Ryan, her little friend, and I said, hey, Ryan, um, does your your parents let you have Facebook or Instagram? And, and she said, no, uh, my dad won't let me have Facebook or any of those things. And I said, why? He says, because when I do, it will, I, it will, I will have the last happy day of my entire life. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, there's a, probably a little bit of an exaggeration, there, but there's some truth there, right? <laughs> that we experience a last happy day? Because here's the deal. We, all of us at some point in time have been on social media and just felt crummy about ourselves, Right? We just have. We wanted whatever somebody else has. Because people, even in our Christian circles, it's not like they're trying to, but they're, you know, oh, hey, I just want, I'm so blessed today, you know, or whatever. And this is what happened. My husband got a $100,000 raise, and we're at the beach. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. God is good. And you're like, <laughs> meanwhile, you're like, $1 for you. You know, I mean, the, the reality is, is that it speaks to a part of us that wants more. It just thinks if I could seize that, Right? Like, if I could just seize that, and it's not just material things, it's the family picture, right? It's the, everybody's great everywhere around me, except here. It happens in our church, not just social media. You look around you, and most of us at some point in time have said, how come everybody's dating somebody, except for me? Or, how come their kids are so still, right? (laughs) Or, how come they look so perfect? We've all at one point in time said, why does my life feel like it's off the rails? And we live in this constant state. But what Paul's saying here is, look, worldliness kills. It kills your joy and your soul because you're finding your identity, your citizenship somewhere else. So what does he say to the Philippians? He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we await eagerly a Savior from there. So he says, listen, the world, we are in it, but we are not of it. We are bathed all over it, but it is not who we are. Our citizenship, our identity is somewhere else. And we should always be longing, homesick almost, for the glory that waits. Look, we are called as followers of Christ to live counterculturally and to live in the middle of this thing. But it doesn't define me. It doesn't define you. The expectations and the pictures and the stuff shouldn't define us. It shouldn't be where identity is. Where is our identity? Firmly planted in the promises of Jesus Christ. And that my citizenship, my identity is in him, and he is all that I need. Paul anchors his life at that moment in in the identity of his Roman citizenship and its Savior. When we anchor our lives in Christ, we find our identity in him alone, I promise you, it will save you. Not just your soul eternally, but it will save your heart. Because most of us are living torn between two worlds. As followers of Christ, we are called to live counterculturally. We're going to face rejection and criticism. It's going to come from the places that you least expect it, right? And when you begin to actually use the name of Jesus, it's going to call a whole lot of things into question for you. And that's okay. It's okay. But our identity has got to be rooted firmly in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Fight worldliness with everything that you have. Make it a daily decision to say, that's not going to be what tells me my worth, what, what I'm worth. The world is not going to define me. They're not going to tell me what beauty looks like. They're not going to tell me what happiness is. And the world's not going to tell me what I need. Jesus has already provided that. 
And he has called me beloved and beautiful, and I will bathe in that. And I will find my citizenship and my identity in him. And the world will be hard, and I'll be fighting it, but I'm not going to let it steal my life or rob me of joy. Paul's going to need to hang on to those words because life's going to get really hard for him over the next three and four chapters. And we're going to watch the lie of a God who gives us all the desires of our heart kind of become real with Paul because his life is going to get really hard really fast. But he is going to find an unquenchable joy that I long for in my life. As we continue on this journey, we're going to ask ourselves those questions. What brings us true, real, triumphant joy? Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word, that it is living and active, that it is powerful and true. Lord, a lot of these things are, are the stuff that I just deal with. Man, I just, they just wreck my life a lot. I fight these things all the time. I fight comfort, and I fight approval, and I fight success, and I fight the desires for stuff and things, and I don't know. It's just a mess, and I want the world to tell me what I'm worth. And Lord, the truth is, it's just a lie. You've already defined my life. You died for me. You called me worth dying for. That each of us in here have been defined by you. Our citizenship, our identity is rooted in you, firmly planted in you. So God, help us be people that know that, that believe that, that live in that, and that want to live counterculturally. That want to say, I don't care what the world says. I don't care what the world tells me I have to have. I don't care what the world tells me I should do with my money or with my life or what my picture should look like. I want what you want for me. And if that leads me someplace that's radical, then I will walk and I will follow you. And I don't care what criticism and rejection come. Because what can the world do to me? Their destiny is destruction. Their glory is their shame. Their God is their stomach. God, I don't want that. I want you. This morning as we close our time in worship, if that's the echo or cry of your heart, cry out to God. Believe the truth of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that he has not just set us free from sin and death, but he has set us free from the lie of the world. You are redeemable, and that you are beautiful, and he has got a call on your life that will live in direct opposition to what the world calls and tells you. So Lord, we give you our hearts and our lives as we cry out these truths together. You are our king. You are our redeemer. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning. Uh, this morning, uh, as we close this out, before we actually sing the final song that we had rehearsed, I just really felt like God leading us to, to um, reiterate something that we sang earlier. And so we'll just kind of chill in it for just a moment. It, we haven't rehearsed this.